welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. Um, really excited to have today's guest on the podcast. Um, I actually got to meet Doug and his cohort, Andy, from Hand Hewn Farm uh, last fall at the Homesteaders of America conference. They had a booth there uh, for their farm and uh, were cutting some incredible prosciutto that uh, was just incredible. Uh, so uh, really excited to... Uh, to have Doug on the podcast tonight talking about their farm in Ohio and their butchery practices that they do and how they go around and teach people and do uh, classes and and extensives at their farm as well. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right into that interview with Doug and I'll catch you guys on the backside. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. Excited to have uh, our guest on tonight. I know I say that a lot. I'm always excited. I'm a very happy person. Uh, but really been looking forward to getting these guys, uh, these guys, uh, there's guys involved, but it's Doug. It's only Doug that I have on the phone tonight. But uh, getting Han Hewn Farms uh, involved on the uh, podcast. So uh, without further ado, I want to welcome Doug Wharton from Han Hewn Farm. Welcome, Doug. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, and if you guys would fully understand the sacrifice Doug is making to to be on tonight's podcast, he's <laughs> he's uh, sitting in his car at the in the. Would you say you're sitting in a, a meadow at the top of the mountain? So we have cell service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my home is kind of down in the ravine in a holler, and uh, I have no signal. So I, I had to get in my little Prius C and drive to the top of the hill. Uh, right now, it's wonderful. The sun's setting. I got the car nice and warm before I killed the engine, oh, yeah. um, so that I could uh, not, you know, not have any extra noise. Uh, but it's wonderful. I might have to fire the engine back up here before long. But <laughs> no, it's uh, there's a good, clear signal. That's what we want right now. So we're good. Excellent, excellent. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Han Hewn Farm. Uh, if, if you would give me a little background history as to uh, the setup, how you came across this property, and, and why this is this has been a uh, just an incredible find for you all. Sure. Uh, it's, you know, as most are, long and, and quite convoluted story, but the kind of Reader's Digest version, uh, I and my wife, and very new family were homesteading uh, in a county uh, here in central Ohio, um, and we made friends with another uh, couple uh, that were also a very young family, um, and they moved out to be closer to us and kind of do the homesteading thing alongside of us, um, and uh, it, it helped. We had only four acres on my piece and one acre on theirs, but we have very different personalities and interests uh, and characters. And so um, while I was raising pigs and meat chickens with some hens, uh, they were raising rabbits and ducks and bees. Um, and so we, and you know, other things, orchards and perennials, et cetera. Uh, but we were learning the, the kind of nearly lost homesteading arts and, uh, and doing it together. Um, and uh, Andy... Uh, uh, the friend in question, uh, he said, look, 
you know, if you if you have any desire to really make a go at this, uh, it's it's worth it's worth your trip to come out to my grandmother's farm, uh, you know, one county over, um, and just take a look at it. And I thought, well, you know, that's great. I, there's lots of places nearby, though. Um, but I, I humored him, and I drove out to Grandma's farm, uh, and I was breathless before we even pulled into the driveway. Yeah. This is one of the most beautiful areas of Ohio, uh, one of the most beautiful areas I've ever been. And, uh, and it was kind of a done deal the moment that I set foot here at the farm. Um, we gave a presentation to, to Grandma. She's now 92, almost 93. She's been here for 70 years. Um, and we gave a presentation to her and the family to say, this is kind of what our interests and desires are. Uh, with your blessing, we'd like to make a go of it. And uh, they threw the doors wide open. And that was five years ago now. Five years ago this April was the first time we, we kind of showed up here and began the heavy lift of Hand-Hewn Farm. Awesome. So what what was the farm doing prior to that? I mean, was Grandma keeping it rolling? Was it was it just laying fallow? What yeah. was... So uh, she and her husband ran a grade-A dairy. Um, they got here in 1950, uh, and they ran that dairy into the mid-'80s. Uh, at that time, they kind of passed the torch to their oldest son, uh, and he ran the dairy. Well, actually, it wasn't the dairy. Back at that time, it was in the go-big-or-get-out sort of um, uh, time frame. And so he did. He went big, uh, and then he went under. And so uh, the, the, the dairy was no longer in operation, but it is quite a good piece of land. Um, and so it was all the, the tillable fields uh, have been and are still being leased uh, to a local farmer who does uh, just conventional monocrops. Um, we have, over time, developed a relationship with him, and I think he f- kind of has a fond appreciation, if not understanding, of what we do. Um, and so if we want to take over a field or a part of the land from him, uh, we just let him know uh, a season or two in advance that we're, we're going to expand a little bit if he's okay with it. Uh, and he is. And so we've been kind of slowly growing into our space. Wow. That's incredible. That allows you to uh, to expand when you need to, but not have to worry about the upkeep in, in West Virginia and in Ohio. If you left that alone, that would be scrub in just a couple of years, wouldn't it? <laughs> but that's, that's exactly right. What that allows us to do is not manage the entire farm. And it's, I think it's 325 acres, something like that. Yeah. And of that, probably 120 are, are woods. Um, so it's, it's a lot of upkeep, certainly. The, the farmer writes a nice check to Grandma every year uh, for his lease, and then we can focus a little bit more intensively on the land that we are using instead of trying to grow and get big. Um, and, the, and this is, I'm sure, a large part of the interview here, but a lot of my practices, especially with the raising of the pigs, is actually in the woods. I, I raise my pigs in the woodlots, which uh, kind of benefits both parties. Yeah. Um, because I'm not taking, quote, valuable farmland. Um, but for me, it's it's everything I want uh, as far as pig husbandry is concerned. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like a win-win setup, and I'm sure Grandma doesn't mind the company. Uh, you all y'all hanging around, right? right. <laughs> yeah, her, her husband passed away 10 years ago now. And uh, before we got here, 
she she was probably on the verge of getting quite lonely. It had been a few years, but she had just been all by herself here on the farm. Uh, she was in her early to mid-80s at the time. Um, and when we showed up, uh, it definitely gave her a lot of opportunity to stare out the window and scratch her head and wonder, what are these fools doing? Uh, and... and <laughs> And while there was while there was certainly some tension and a lot of conversation, like working her through some of our kind of bizarre practices, um, we we had a lot of the "that's not how I used to do it" sort of conversation. Um, the companionship uh, and the affection was always there. So it's yeah, it's always been a, a real blessing, I think, for both parties. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Now, you and Andy both have families, correct? It's not just the two of you guys working this out, right? That's correct. Yeah, i i have uh, I have a wife and three children, and so does Andy. My my kids are uh, four, ten, and twelve, and his are right behind mine. Um, all all three. So, uh, yeah, young young families trying to make a go of it. Um, the distinction is I, when I moved out here, I quit my job, uh, so that I could pour myself into the space and then build a home for my family. While Andy, uh, he is a school teacher. He's an elementary education uh, teacher and he, he continues a full-time job as a teacher while trying to manage, uh, our small farm business and, and family life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a great, I mean, the, the, the whole tag team uh, principle of that really just, it's really exciting. I mean, it, it's, it's something that, that you look at and say, man, just all the, all the things that you guys can get done with that. The fact that you have uh, kids getting to the age where you're going to see the return on investment when it comes to free labor on farm, <laughs> all that sounds mm-hmm. exciting. But um, how scary is that though? I mean, is there a, is there a day where, where you guys may have a disagreement and you're thinking, okay, is this whole thing going to fall apart or has, have, have you been able to dodge that so far? Um, yeah, it's, it, it is not unlike, uh, it is not unlike a marriage in that, uh, you know, we kind of made a commitment here and we're not, we're not in the business of backing out of it. If things get tough, um, Andy and I have only been close friends now for 10 years, which I guess now sounds like a while, but, uh, during the earliest years of our, uh, of our friendship during the homesteading days. Uh, it was actually home brewing that brought us together. We would home brew in my cellar, uh, and what that allowed us to do is not just spend quality one-on-one time, kind of getting to know one another, but also the finer nuances of how to operate together. Uh, you know, which one of us were the, was the one that was going to do all the heavy lifting? Which one of us was going to be the one to take all the notes? Uh, which one of us was going to order supplies and and make sure that next time we got together, everything was going to be uh, ready to go. Um, so there was a lot of the kind of subtle subtleties of, of business management kind of built into our friendship. Um, and so when, when this opportunity presented itself, it didn't seem like quite a leap. And, you know, I'll be honest, a number of people, uh, were skeptical, um, <laughs> and gave me lines like, you know, partnerships are sinking ships and, and that kind of nonsense. Um, yeah, we are. We are in the opposite boat. We couldn't do what we do without their family, and they couldn't do what they do without ours. We're we're trying to help uh, one another achieve uh, individual or autonomous dreams. 
uh, which could not have which could not have had um, even a possibility without the other. So, yeah, the other it helps though that there's uh, there's not a lot of ego involved. Um, we are just trying to do this thing together. Um, whatever this thing has evolved into, which which has taken several different iterations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. What a great, what a great setup. And and uh, I've 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 met you guys before, obviously, and, and talking with you before uh, uh, last year at the Homesteaders Conference. Uh, you know, just just in that time, see that there's there's definitely a good friendship there. And 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 some of the things we're about to get into and talk about, uh, just even build on that. You guys have an incredible tag team process with your. Uh, with some of your your instruction and teaching opportunities there. Okay, well let's uh, let's go on talk a little bit about your uh, livestock philosophy, and then we'll kind of drill down and talk specifically about the hogs. I know you're a, you're a polyculture there on the farm, but uh, what's the philosophy of how you guys uh, go about raising uh, livestock? Well, it's you know the it's what we do now uh, is is. Seemingly not new. Uh, it's not revolutionary. You know, we kind of just try to let the pigs be pigs and work out a system that, that works for both parties, you know, the pigs and us. Um, but when we started, that that wasn't a, there was no real good playbook for it. Um, you know, I've been raising pigs now for 10 years. And when I started trying to source pigs uh, back then, um, I was looking at one or two breeds and I might have to drive a couple hours to get them. Um, and and things have have evolved and transitioned quite dramatically in that ten year period as far as uh, pigs and pig husbandry and 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 breed selection, especially here in Ohio. I, I know you know we go around to quite a few places in the mid Midwest and the East Coast, and and, and I see it happening more and more. But but the kind of the development of of husbandry, um, a lot of that is situational and. Um, if I were to have uh, my preference, uh, I would always raise a pig in its most natural habitat and then just provide context, uh, management context um, that, that makes things a little bit more convenient uh, on the human um, part of that relationship, but, but also uh, safe and predictable. So uh, I raise my pigs in the woods, um, and I don't do that for any other reason except I've had them on pasture. And I don't like what they do to it. Now, there are all kinds of, of school of thought, philosophies, and, and arguments uh, about breeds. And, well, maybe you, maybe you need this, or maybe you need to breed this trade out, or maybe you should just go to the Coonies, et cetera. Um, but in my limited experience, when I put pigs in the woods, um, and I do have that as an option. I know that not everyone does. Uh, but when I put pigs in the woods, they go around like vacuum cleaners just cleaning up the floor of the woods, including uh, the very invasive multi-floor rows that we have here in Ohio. Yeah. So they'll go around and clean up all the nuts and all of the forage and then the brambles. And, uh, and I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what situation I could be in and, and what for more than that. Um, so it seems like the pigs are content and happy. Uh, and it makes life a little bit easier for me. Um, well, uh, easier because when they were on pasture, it was a it was a near constant management situation where how much damage is too much before I rotate them, yeah. sort of thing. And 
And in the woods, that question never even arises. I, I have to, I concluded early on that the sacrifice zone for feed and water is imperative uh, because anywhere I had them in the woods and I had a watering system and I've had several different uh, variations of watering systems, wherever there was water, there was wallows and wherever there was wa- wallows, there was just defiled, degraded earth and, and I'm hoping to avoid that. So uh, the sacrifice system has worked really well for me. I have found some like rock outcroppings hmm. uh, in the woods and that is where I put their feed. Uh, that is where they receive their water. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can I could go on and on, but I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll rein it in a little bit. No, oh, that's great. That's great. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I got to say, as a as a fellow woodlot pig raiser, the uh, uh, I fell in love with them as soon as I saw them eat poison ivy because I'm deathly allergic to poison yeah. ivy. And and when they started wailing yeah. on, I'm like, yeah. oh, I am in love. So it's good stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I, I know we want to focus on uh, hog production and, and, and some of those details, but Doug, share with us a little bit about overall farming. You, you'd mentioned some stuff that Andy's into and that you guys brought to the table. How does all that tie into your philosophy of regenerative, regenerative agriculture? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think it's, it's probably not a single answer. Um, like most things, uh, with especially with Andy and my relationship, but his family and mine, we probably have very different answers uh, given enough time. Um, for I, and I'll only speak for myself here, um, but for me, regenerative farming, so called, is nothing more or less than than stewardship. Um, hopefully, the the wise and considerate stewardship of the land. Um, and, and I would take it a step further and say the wise and steward, or I'm sorry, the, the, the wise and considerate stewardship of creation. Um, so, uh, for me, um, you know, do no harm is, is, not, is, is way up at the top of the list. Um, but I want, I want desperately to, uh, kind of turn, turn back a little bit of the, uh, continuum, the, the destructive one that, that both that farming, and expansion uh, of um, not just civilization broadly, but <laughs> the the development at the for for the sake of profit and um, oh, land acquisition. Um, it's it's more it's more than I can can stomach. I'd rather I'd rather do it full time uh, for free than uh, than make money. Um, Eroding it and compromising it. Um, I don't know. I, that's not a that's not a clean answer, but um, it's important to me to leave it better than I found it. Yeah. And I don't I don't know how to do that. Um, it's really it's really easy to to talk about um, to have philosophies, but you know every time I even ha- I'm, I'm I'm in the rolling hills. And every time I have my pigs on the side of a hill, uh, I have to ask myself the question, like, am I actually working against my own philosophy here? Right. Yeah. And, and if so, what are the consequences and what are the alternatives? And so it is, it is a near-continuing struggle to raise pigs outside. Because, uh, you know, when they're in a barn on concrete, you don't have to worry about erosion. <laughs> There's a lot of other collateral damages, certainly. Um, but yeah, it is the, the, the philosophy 
born out of um, kind of the conviction to be a good steward and informed um, by pretty much everything that Wendell Berry has ever written um, has created a, a dilemma now for how, how to do this thing well and earnestly uh, without all the BS of trying to like sell this new way of farming to a new generation, yeah. uh, which I think is very tempting, and I see it all around me. Um, but I will, I will be the first to admit, I, I don't think that there's a silver bullet. Um, every context is, is so different. Uh, every practice uh, so different. Um, in, in, in both the, the, the returns as well as the, the sacrifices made um, to the to the farmer, to the livestock, and the land. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, you, you something said something there that really strikes a chord with me, and that's this, um, this, uh, this, this waging of of am I doing the right thing when it comes to pigs uh, being on pasture, especially in the topography that you and I share, is uh, you know, this time of year you see. Okay, the pigs are a little hard on that hillside right now, and you know I find myself putting in uh, these catchments or these these small swales that that will hopefully slow down erosion, but there's still erosion going on, and it is a struggle to uh, to see uh, you know, what are we doing when we had our property. We had uh, tons and tons of garbage on it when we bought it. So to me, it's okay. I'm I'm making this a better place because I'm picking up all this garbage and hauling it off. But uh, when it comes to soil quality and and erosion uh, control, you know, how how am I doing there? So it is, and I'm glad to hear you share that because it's you know, so, you know, so many times you think everybody has all the right answers when they're doing something well, but it's uh, there's still some variables there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's let's dive into uh, let's dive into hog production here and talk about uh, what you've got going on there. So, uh, now I, obviously, I know a lot of these answers. So I'm going to lead you a little bit here because we've uh, we've talked before, and and I think a lot of people that listen probably know uh, know about you guys as well, since you you guys do have a pretty good uh, pretty good social following out there. But let's talk about your your pigs on pasture. What uh, I know you deal with heritage hogs normally. Are, do you farrowed? Are you purchasing wean? How are you, how are you starting that process? Yeah, all of the above. Um, when we got out here to the farm, uh, we sourced 20 piglets uh, from two farms that we really loved their practices. We wanted to support them and we love their breeds. Um, one of the one of the farms we got pure uh, GOS pigs, Australian old pups, and the other farm we got um, heritage mutts, and they were like a four or five way cross, including uh, old spots. But they also had some red wattle in there and some large black. Um, and it, as it turned out, uh, we uh, we saved the, the best ones uh, based on certain characteristics we were looking for, temperament being one of them. Uh, conversion efficiency being one, um, and you know, if, and also uh, when I say temperament, I mean we we chose these pigs when they were still adolescents, and and when they were out there in the woods or they were at the feeding trough, if we would go to pet them and they would snarl or bark or you know back away, um, we thought, well, you know, maybe this maybe this isn't the pig I want to be raising. So we we were pretty selective um, for a few different ways. Um, because heritage mutts uh, have all kinds of positive attributes, um, some of them being uh, disease resistance or mothering capabilities or uh, resistance to uh, the inclement uh, 
uh, climate or weather that we have here in Ohio during, especially the, the spring and the winter, um, all of these attributes um, are easily are easily held in tension or comparison with what the actual carcass yield is. And even though we are not a dollars and cents farm, as it were, we still want to raise a pig with a solid carcass. We want it to convert all that feed, because our feed is not cheap, uh, into really high-quality meat, not some high-quality meat and, and, and truckloads of fat. Right. So the carcass, the carcass uh, yield is relevant, but how do you do that when you start, uh, when you start from piglet? Um, so our, our consideration was, you know, as it, as it grew out and filled out, um, you know, we, we looked for things uh, like not the, not the pink pig, um, like muscular bodybuilder uh, physique, uh, but we wanted it to be um, full. Uh, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I could get graphic, but that sounds weird. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we, we, picked a, we picked a half a dozen pigs, uh, three or four at the time, that we wanted to be our sows. And so everybody else went to market, and we kept these sows. Uh, and then uh, six months to nine months later, we decided, well, you know, I, I don't know that I personally am, am interested in being in the business of raising a boar. So we borrowed a boar from a neighboring farm. And we did that a few times, only sometimes I took my ladies to their farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes he would come here and sometimes there. Um, but we did farrowing for a, a few years, uh, and and I'll tell you, we had to say mixed results is a, is an extreme. Um, sometimes I would have like for the first parody, this is a this is a this is a guilt who is farrowing for the first time. I have like anywhere between thirteen and sixteen piglets per, hmm. and almost all of them survived. Wow, and. It was a complete victory, a total success. It was like anybody can do this. Uh, it was very, very encouraging, very confidence building. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I built false confidence, by the way. Um, I built in this narrative that everything I was doing, I was doing right, and it yielded this result. Um, and consequently, uh, a fairing or two or three later, um, I realized that there there were so many variables involved, um, especially because I allowed my sows to farrow in the woods or in the fields, wherever they chose, sometimes. Um, and a part of this is management. If they farrow in August, shame on me. Um, you know, they'll, they'll pick this open space out in the middle of a, of a meadow, and it's 93 degrees, and there's no shade. Mm. And this poor sow is just laying there baking. So I, you know, obviously take immediate action, you know, putting in step-in posts or, or T-posts and tarps and lean-tos and, and wallows. And, but I'm carrying all, every day I carry 20 <laughs> pounds of water right. out to this pig, out in the middle of this field, in the middle of nowhere. And I just thought, well, this, this could be better. But then uh, I also have had them farrow in February in Ohio, uh, where it's, you know, it's 50 degrees one day, and then they farrow the night before it turns three, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or the negative. 
and uh, I just lost too many pigs that way. Uh, we have a lot of rain in the winter here these days, and and when it rains, right after a, a sow builds a nest, you end up with a puddle, and I had too many drowned piglets, yeah. um, and I just got, it was kind of equal parts heartbreaking and tired of throwing piglets into the woods. And, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I can get just about any breed of pig I want in an hour and a half drive. And so I just thought, uh, you know, why, why am I doing this to myself? Um, that happened to coincide with um, this project that I had under, undergone, uh, building my own home um, almost entirely by myself because I am a glutton for punishment <laughs> and abuse and I had put the pig responsibility on my wife and young children and it just seemed prudent uh, to wean myself off of the farrowing for a time so for the last year I think yeah, no year year to year and a half um, we have sourced uh, weaned piglets from uh, a farm down in southern Ohio, uh, I'll give a, I'll give a plug. Um, he he's a he's a fantastic farmer, Woodland Ridge. Paul Harper with Woodland Ridge, uh, and he raises his pigs in Athens. Uh, he raises large black Tamworth crosses, and all of them in the woods. Um, Paul is something of a um, gentleman farmer, if you will, in that he realizes he's kind of too old and and too tired to do all the heavy lifting of farm work, so he hires young, energetic, and zealous uh, farmers to do the work for him, which is kind of a win for both parties because his ideology can win every time. Um, he doesn't necessarily have to sacrifice to the, the, the pains of, of time and age. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he has a fantastic operation, and I've been sourcing my piglets from him uh, for the last three batches that we've raised. Oh, very good. Very good. All right. Well, you had mentioned uh, feed briefly. Uh, let's talk about that real quick. What What are you doing for feed, and is it is it something that you guys are sourcing locally, or are you you growing your own because of the access to, to all this tillable land, or, or are you just bringing it, bringing it in? One day we hope to actually use the, the actual farm land and even, and even hire out the farmer to do it, um, Right now, there happens to be a local Amish uh, feed mill uh, that, that we, we, we use. They, it's all non-GMO feed. Uh, they actually source it from local farms, but, you know, they aggregate it. Um, and they can deliver it straight to our farm, uh, either in bulk or in sack uh, bag form. So uh, we've been doing that basically since we got here. Um, there that's an entire separate conversation about the conventional and organic and non-GMO. Um, but I can tell you that we are pretty happy with our, with our feed supplier, uh, and with the quality of feed. Uh, and this conversation could go very many different ways. Um, but for us, uh, because we aren't raising pigs for, uh, hobby, um, or for the love of the game, we, uh, unapologetically raise pigs for really high-quality meat, um, predominantly in the form of charcuterie, uh, we have been satisfied with the even 
ness of the fat um, of our pigs. So if if we went in a different direction, uh, the fat may be much, much softer, uh, which would benefit some of the larger, like, whole muscle cures, uh, prosciutto or culatello or pancetta. Uh, but it could be at, at the, at the uh, deficit of the salami, uh, where, you know, you want a nice hard back fat that's going to have a nice um, kind of crisp, firm bite uh, and, and bind. So it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's, it's very difficult to have both, and with our current uh, operation, we feel satisfied that we have both. Hmm. All right, wow, excellent. Well, let's um, let's let's segue into that. That's that's a good point to uh, to transition. So I know you you provide cuts on your website. So you've got uh, retail cuts which uh, obviously means you've got to go all farm to a USDA processor or at least a state inspected processor to do that. But you guys have an incredible experience in in doing your own processing and the charcuterie that you'd mentioned. So, pardon the pun, flesh that out a little bit for me. How how do those two, do they rub against one another? How does that that work out for you? Yeah, so good question. Um, The retail cuts, um, they pay the bills, as it were. Uh, selling to the markets covers the cost of our truck payment and our utility bill and our licenses and our diesel, things like that. Uh, they're a steady and kind of predictable uh, income-generating source. Uh, the other thing is, because the way our workshops are, are structured, um, we do generally one pig at a time, but I'm not in the business of raising one pig at a time. And so if I raise 15 to 20 at a time, some of those can, can go into the freezer and be sold as, as retail cuts. Um, as you say, that, that requires us to take them to a, a inspected facility. Uh, we are very, very blessed to be within five miles of a uh, USDA-inspected poultry operation. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, and at a few um, ODA-inspected uh, butchering facilities, so um, the Ohio Department of Agriculture. So we, we have, we are surrounded, we, we credit that largely to the, the, the tremendous Amish community that we are um, in the midst of. Um, but we are very, very blessed to be able to take uh, our pigs or, our, or any of our poultry or rabbits if we want them stamped uh, less than five miles away. So that's, that, that is a contributing factor to that decision, certainly. If we had to drive hours or across state lines, uh, that would be a different thing. But, um, but yeah, the, a, a portion of the pigs are, um, are allocated for retail cuts, uh, and all the rest go to our butchering workshops. Excellent. Okay. So, uh, so let's talk about that then. So the, um, um, I think what, if anybody's heard of Han Hewn Farm, they've probably seen videos on YouTube or um, Facebook and, and pictures on Instagram of what you guys do. It, to me, I think it's the hallmark, and, and I don't want to define your, your overall uh, uh, business model, but it seems to be the hallmark of at least how I came to know you all. And that, those are those intensives that you do and the workshops that you do. Uh, explain what you do there in, in, in both of those scenarios. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, backing up for just a moment, when when I was homesteading um, uh, a couple counties over from here, 
uh, alongside Andy and his wife. Um, my very first pigs that I ever raised, I think I had three the first the first winter. Um, I bought them naively uh, and carried them home in the back of a Ford Ranger and and raised them out uh, there in a stand of pines there on my four acres. And uh, when the when the time came, I uh, kind of too late to the game began asking the question, what what now? What, what, what do I do next? And so Andy suggested, well, man, let's just do it. Let's just do it. We can do this. And I thought he was crazy. Um, we had never slaughtered uh, or butchered pigs. He has a little bit of a, a background in history uh, witnessing his, his grandparents do it when he was a little boy. Um, but, but it was more of a necessity than it was anything because I didn't own a livestock trailer. And I didn't even know of any butchering uh, uh, facilities where we live, so it was it was us kind of like painting ourselves into a corner, as it were. Yeah. Um, like that said, uh, the very first pigs that we ever did, uh, we still um, made a go at prosciutto and capicola and sopracetta, which I, I, I say laughingly because we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. <laughs> Um, but, but the reason that it's relevant is because we, we could, I can buy pork anywhere. You can buy pork anywhere. If you're going to go to the trouble of raising it yourself, then you should get as much value, um, and, and as much joy as possible out of, out of every ounce of that pork. And so for us, it was uh, kind of equal parts necessity. Uh, and then the, the aspirations of, of what, what is possible here? Um, and so we started from uh, from from day one. Uh, we started the process of what what does it take to make this excellent? Um, and people that have signed up for our workshops or watched our videos perhaps have heard us say, uh, "You can benefit tremendously from all of our mistakes. We are experts in doing it wrong because for so many years." And so many pigs, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, but we continually refined our practices, um, a lot of note-taking, a lot of, and that's the, that's the beauty of a business partner or someone to do this with. Uh, there's kind of the uh, institutional knowledge that goes hand-in-hand with the thing. If you don't remember it, perhaps the other person will. Um, so we developed a, a routine and a practice. Um, and while no two pigs have been done the same, um, we have continued to, uh, with building blocks, kind of create a model where we can invite people into a workshop where we start out with a pig, either on the pasture uh, or in the woods, and we teach people how to humanely slaughter or kill this pig. Uh, but from the, from the shot uh, and the stick all the way through to the final processing of dry curing and trussing your culatello, um, Everything is about uh, the highest possible value uh, that you can get from this pork. So our shot placement and the stick, uh, the collection of the blood to be used in a myriad of different recipes. Um, we scald and scrape instead of skinning the hog. Uh, and then we use as much of the viscera, um, the organ meat, as we possibly can. So uh, we invite people into this process with us, um, and we have found over the years that some of those folks um, are, are, are here at this workshop because 
they are going to go home and try this themselves. They want to know uh, how to do it right the first time and not uh, screw up like we did so many times. Um, and this is a very practical, uh, hands-on, kind of DIY sort of experience. Whereas other people, um, they live in town or in the city and they have corporate jobs or live in a condo and, and they just want to be in touch with where food comes from, uh, whether they're foodies uh, or kind of agritourists. They want an experience that, that is, is culinarily driven. Um, and often... Uh, back with a conviction that I've eaten meat my whole life and I've never been a part of this process uh, and I want to I want to uh, experience a little bit of something different um, so yeah our workshops uh, try to cater to both both of those extremes um, because we feel that uh, you know less than one percent of the population is going to raise pigs for food uh, but everybody cares about high quality food Um so yeah, we've kind of thrown the doors open, uh, and and we have a pretty high culinary bar for ourselves, which kind of intimidates a lot of folks. But we try our best to make sure that it is it should not be intimidating because the very worst case scenario uh, in the butchering is is really excellent sausage. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, excellent. Well, you know, something that that stuck in our minds uh, when we met in October at the Homesteaders Conference. What? And I don't want to mess this up. What were we sampling there at your at your booth? Yeah, that would have been uh, co- commonly referred to as a prosciutto. Uh, that was a, a the back leg of a pig, uh, skin on because it was scalded and scraped, um, and um, cured with salt only, uh, no other ingredients, um, for two years mm. uh, before we took it to the, the conference there. Yeah. And that's that's a you know the it, it is not it is regional certainly but but uh, the Italians which is which is where the prosciutto comes from um, they they are world renowned uh, for their curing uh, but they are not to be outdone by the Spaniards uh, who who have a have quite a claim I think for the most expensive pork in the world the jamón ibérico de Bilota, which is which is essentially the same thing it's a it's a cured back leg of a pig. Uh, but it's raised from uh, a, a specific breed of pig, uh, the Iberico pig, and they are fed out on acorns. Um, and, and those two countries, Spain and Italy, uh, they have a lot to offer us in the U.S. Um, because they're, they have a very, very rich tradition um, with what they have, what they've been able to do with pork over the centuries. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, as far as as diving into these processes, again, you'd mentioned that uh, some, you set the bar high, and and some people find this very intimidating, which I'm definitely one of those. Um, explain a little bit. I was just looking at your website. So, in the end of this month, it looks like there's a a Spanish style butchering event coming up, um, and that is yeah. that is not on your farm, correct? That is correct. Yeah, that that's at a uh, a farm uh, about an hour and a half from here. It's in it's in central Ohio, um, and it is a farm. We've actually I bet we've done four four or five workshops there now. Uh, he's he's grown in, uh, to to be a, a very dear friend of ours, uh, Joe Green, and we've done uh, pigs and beef at his place. We've done a. Um, um, what was it? Uh, a couple of years ago, we did a. Uh, well, the name escapes me. Um, huh. uh, oh my goodness, it's so 
silly. The 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 Creole uh, butchering of a pig. Um, <laughs> and, and the, oh, whatever. Anyway, uh, but yeah, he he's he's a great guy, and uh, we are going to do a two day workshop at his place. Um, very different than our three day workshop because the Spanish style, so called. Uh, actually involves the removal of the spine and feather bones um, at the time of evisceration. Um, and so after the spine and the feather bones are removed and the ribs are removed, and then you essentially end up with a large, um, near, near boneless pig uh, that can immediately transition into salami making um, that day. So you end up uh, hot boning, as it's called, um, the, the pork, which which is a very different experience, mm. uh, and we we learned that technique uh, from a guy named Jim Klebowski, uh, Doctor Smokehouse, who I think you are, yeah. you and maybe your listeners are familiar with. Yeah, yeah, we we interviewed uh, Jim. Uh, it's been it's probably been ten episodes ago, but yeah, we've had him on before. Uh-huh. Yeah, he he was in Spain. Um, uh, at at a, a montanza, which which is this uh, kind of Spanish uh, butchering, and he came back uh, the week that we had invited him to our farm uh, to be a part of a butchering, and he and, and it just seemed like a lost opportunity to not translate everything that we had just learned or he had just learned in Spain uh, here. So we we let him kind of lead the charge, and we we did this Spanish style butchering for the first time. Um, one of its benefits. Uh, if I could just speak to it briefly, is it doesn't require hoisting of the animal. Hmm. Uh, the pig we, we had on pallets, uh, pallets for our own ease and convenience so we're not doubled over on the ground. Um, so we had, you know, five or six pallets. The pig set like three and a half feet off the ground, and then uh, we we poured boiling water over it to salt and scrape it so that when it's time to eviscerate it, everything is right there in front of you. Um, and then And then if it's a large animal, uh, and this one happened to be when Jim was there. It was like an eight to nine hundred pound sow. Uh, you don't ever have to hoist it off the ground and eviscerate it. Everything is done right there on the pallet. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, looking at, again, looking at your schedule, it looks like you guys do several intensives. Um, you have an intensive schedule. It looks like uh, actually coming into spring. So not only do you do butchering uh, classes on farm at at Hanhun Farm, but People can can contract you all to come to the, to come to like you come to my farm and, and butcher one of my sows and and do a process there as well. Correct? Uh, yeah, that's 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 correct. So um, that's that's something that is uh, even though it is exhausting for Andy and I um, because it's in, like, it ends up being like a five day a five day trip driving wherever we're going and then three twelve hour days and then driving home. It is still so life-giving and rewarding. We get to meet these these pockets of of like agrarian renaissance all over the country, and it is it is so rewarding. Uh, it, it's it's one of my favorite my favorite parts of what we do. It's wonderful having people come to our farm and do everything right there in our butcher shop, where you know we we have a very predictable outcome with a, kind of a turnkey operation. But when we go somewhere else, uh, it's it's just so enriching uh, meeting. So many different people, um, you know, with this common, albeit bizarre, um, kind of uh, desire, aspiration, conviction, uh, and passion. It's, it's wonderful. 
Yeah, excellent. That sounds great. Uh, well, Doug, one thing that um, that I've, I've I've seen you do, and and I appreciate it. You, you'd mentioned Wendell Berry earlier in our discussion here, and I, I just harken back to this this concept of the gentleman farmer. Um, how does how does Wendell Berry and and what he brings to uh, to farming fit into your all's processes? <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> you go as long as you want. I think you're the one that's got the next gig to yeah. do. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I I uh, I was introduced to Wendell Berry when I when I was oh mercy uh, it's been at least twenty years ago now and um, and even though at that time in my life um, at early twenties um, I was already a fan of you know the transcendentalists and Thoreau and this idea of just going back to the woods when I read Wendell Berry uh, all of a sudden. I realized that all these other folks, uh, even though they may be masters of literature or of poetry or whatever, um, they were writing about a thing. And, and Wendell Berry is writing from that place. And, and that was immediately evident to me and arresting to me. And I was living in a very urban environment. I was living in, in Columbus, Ohio, in a, in a tiny little community called German Village, uh, in a 150-year-old home, and I could not stop reading Wendell Berry, and um, and it has it has never he and his life and his and his work have never stopped to it have never stopped influencing me. Um, in fact, right now I, I'm reading his his latest publication, the, the Art of Loading Brush, and and it is it is impossible for me to articulate his influence on my life. Um, simply because he practices what he preaches. He practices with discipline, and he preaches with eloquence. And I, I can't, I can't imagine a a more apt role model uh, for anyone that has an interest in kind of stemming the tide of. It could be consumerism or capitalism or socialism. You name it. Like, if you just want to be an authentic human and live rightly in some kind of harmony or balance with the land and with your neighbor, <laughs> then, then, like, you should start with Wendell Berry uh, and probably end there. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said, I could, I could go on and on. But suffice it to say, uh, we are big fans of, of Wendell's. And, and as it happens... Wendell Berry has a poem uh, written many decades ago called uh, For the Hog Killing. And it was introduced to us after we had been doing our butchering for a while, our, our butchering uh, weekend. And, uh, and the, the, the moment it was introduced to us, it became a part of our lexicon, a part of our culture. Uh, and we have never since uh, had a hog butchering without it. Um, and, and without reading it beforehand, that is. And, and as an aside, um, we, uh, Andy, found a guy on Facebook uh, several years ago now. Uh, again, this was this was Jim Klebowski. And Jim was re- returning from Italy this time. Um, and he had been uh, working with a guy there uh, for a, a full intensive week of, of butchering um, and charcuterie named um, Massimo Spigaroli. And he was going to come back from Italy and do a workshop at his home 
that was going to be all Massimo. Everything we learned there, he was going to re- replicate. And Andy and I pretty much invited ourselves and said, you don't know us, but we are, we are not going to miss out on this. <laughs> and so we went. And the very first time we had ever met this guy and his community, his friends, uh, he said, so we do this tradition where we read this poem by Wendell Berry. No kidding. And we knew, we, we knew right then that we were a part of something special. Yeah. Uh, and we've been trying our best to kind of pay it forward and, and spread the good word ever since. Um, there, there, is a, there is a way to, to live in right balance with, with your land and your neighbor. Uh, but it has to be mindful and intentional. Uh, and Wendell Berry is those things. So, all right, excellent. Well, I appreciate that. That's that's some good insight. And um, one thing I, Doug, one thing I like to close out with uh, as we wrap up this interview. Like I said, I know you've got uh, you've got you've got cutting to do tonight. I believe, don't you? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah. So. So one uh, one kind of closing question is: What do you find in, in all of your your experience with raising hogs? What is your favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? Hmm. Man, what is my favorite part? Well, wow! <laughs> Threw a lot at you there. It, it, it. Well, it's well, it's dynamic because every once in a while, on the right, on the right day, I raise my pigs quite a ways from where I live. I mean, it's a good twenty-minute walk all the way back across the farm, back to the woods where they're at. And on the right day, it'll almost bring me to tears that this is so beautiful, and how am I so blessed to be able to live here in this beautiful place and raise these beautiful animals in this natural way. And and that walk alone reminds me and refreshes me of why I do what I do. Wow. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> when you slice in <laughs> to a two-year-old or three-year-old culatello or prosciutto that you've been waiting for and building anticipation for, and that was from a pig that might have been two years old at the time. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking four or five years uh, of a trajectory here. Uh, and you slice into it, and it's paper thin, and you smell it even before it gets to your face. And the sensory overload of this thing uh, and, and the near sensual experience of it is not something that anybody could ever prepare themselves for. It is, it is arresting. It is, <laughs> it is crazy, yeah. and and we believe that when you can do that, you know, this isn't a knife and fork sort of meal. Um, you can enjoy it by the gram in ways that are profound, and we uh, we feel pretty strongly that that is the best way to do service and honor this animal and this practice when you can when you can bring that level of value to it. Yeah. Um, so I would say somewhere in between those two answers. Well, that's great. Uh, depending I mean, on the day. That's great. I mean, that, that kind of covers the gamut there from, from cradle to grave in, in that whole process. Yeah. And I got to say, with that's that, right. uh, I, I could definitely understand with that prosciutto that we te- uh, tried in October. Uh, it was just unbelievable. I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that before. In fact, I found myself, I don't know if you guys caught on to me till about the second day. But I kept coming back in disguises so I could get uh, different samples. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you know, 
little French mustache. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know this guy's voice. It's like they'll, they'll never recognize me. <laughs> That's why we take it. That's why we take it. This this coming year, uh, we have decided we are going to take a prosciutto to Homesteads of America um, that we don't plan on bringing home. Uh, it, it's going to be two years old, and it will be from a workshop that we did at that conference two years ago. Wow. So it will have been uh, uh, butchered and cured at a Homesteaders of America 2018. And then two years later, uh, it's going to be uh, a new experience all over again. It's, it's next It's next iteration. Uh, and we are going to, we're going to raffle it off. Um, wow. uh, but, but during the weekend, we're still going to be slicing it and sharing it with people. Uh, but we figured, you know what, why not? It's, it's apt. We, we should just make it happen. That's fantastic. Well, I will definitely be there, and I will have my uh, ticket book ready. Excellent. Oh, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, uh, Doug, I'll, I'll let you go. But in, in parting, how can uh, people find out more about Han Hoon Farm and, and the workshops and all the things that you guys have going on? Yeah. Good question. We are terrible at self-promotion. <laughs> um, we don't even know how to do it. Uh but uh, the, the kind of crude, rudimentary ways, uh, you know, you can go to our website, uh, handtunefarm.com. Um, we do have a Facebook and Instagram presence. Um, so we don't, because our workshops are what they are, um, which is to say experiential, um, <laughs> it's, it's very, very difficult for us to put words to or express what this thing is. Um, you know, for many, many people, it is a it is a legitimately life changing experience, and it is difficult for us to just make some Instagram or Facebook post about that. Yeah. Um, and so we 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 default to just not doing it and let other people promote us, which you know has varying degrees of uh, of um, kind of pragmatism. But uh, no, we 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 have uh, the website and. Um, and the social media, but uh, we also are going to just continually be putting things up throughout the season. Uh, this year, I have 15 pigs left in the woods, and I have committed with Andy to not put any of them in the freezer, oh, which wow. means we're going to do our best to have at least one or two workshops a month all year long um, so that we can kind of finish strong uh, and, and, uh, Provide provide many and numerous op, op, opportunities for for butchering workshops because not not everybody wants or needs a three day intensive. Um, so some of them may just be how to make bacon, how to make sausage, how to make pate, uh, you know, how to make salami or dry curing, etc. So uh, that's that's what we're that's what our goal is for for 2020 is to not put any of those pigs in the freezer. So wow, wonderful. So yeah, stay tuned. Well, we'll have a lot of stuff coming up. Excellent. Yeah, and and if uh, if anybody is on YouTube, which I guess almost everybody is, interestingly enough, Han Hude Farm does not have a YouTube channel, but they are all over YouTube. <laughs> they were terrible at self promotion. Terrible. So all you need, terrible. So all you many need, people. So, so you guys so badly you see the YouTube channel. We're like, yeah, we know. Yeah. 
Well, you don't. You really don't need. To. I mean, obviously, Justin Rhodes. I mean, my goodness, there's been so many large channels that have featured you guys, and um, and, and yeah, I agree. I, I don't think you know, you know, no matter what somebody does with a video camera, it, it doesn't necessarily do the experience justice. But it is incredible to watch, and and it's really neat to see these guys in action going through this process at, on, on site uh, at their place or at somebody else's farm. So be sure to go to YouTube and check that out. All you got to do is just search Hanhewn Farm and you'll see a, a copious amount of options there to, to watch from. Well, all right. Well, Doug, I'm going to wrap this up and let you go again. I appreciate your time and, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. And uh, I hope you have fun in the uh, butcher shop tonight. Hey, Troy, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, man. All right. Well, have a good evening. I really appreciate uh, Doug taking the time to uh, talk with me. He was actually, uh, due to the connection, he was actually sitting in his car up on top of the hill having the phone conversation with me. So, Doug, I appreciate your sacrifice for the podcast. Um, also, uh, I, I like to tease him. I, his his voice, he is such a, a incredible deep voice that he should be in... Uh, keep saying, man, you need to be in uh, voiceover talent. And in, in my experience in marketing, you could really do a lot with that voice. He, uh, to me, kind of epitomizes a gentleman farmer, very well-read, very well-spoken, and uh, just uh, easy to listen to. So if you want to know more about them, I will post uh, all the information to their farm down below in the uh, in the show notes, so you can check that out. Um Got a new round of interviews scheduled coming up, so if you'd like to be part of that round or know somebody that does or would or want to be topical, uh, let me know what topic you want me to focus on, and we can do some research there and, and get that going. So just go to our website, redtoolhouse.com. You can use either our contact form or the Pastured Pig podcast link and go to that form and just submit any information, or just feel free to email me, troy at redtoolhouse.com, and let me know what you think. All right. I pray everyone has a great week out in the pasture. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.